Well, again, I do want to say good morning to you, and, and as always, say thank you for joining us. This morning in, in our text, we're going to study the most influential court case ever prosecuted. And I would encourage you that as you read through Romans chapters 1 through 3, to read it from that that standpoint, because we are going to see it as a court case laid out. And the ramifications of this case began nearly uh, 6,000 years ago, but they continue to affect even events today. And so Paul is going to act as a prosecuting attorney. He's going to be a, a spokesman on behalf of God. But what's going to happen towards the end of chapter 3 it is going to be a plot twist that Hollywood itself could not have written. And so I want to encourage you, grab your Bible. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 together. So we're going to spend most of our time there. As you're going there, here's the one big thing. That what we need more than anything is a transformed heart. This has been a theme that has run throughout this series and will continue for the next couple of weeks to understand what God wants for us is not behavior modification, but rather a new heart and a transformed life. So let's look at it together. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 25 and ask if you're able, if you would stand as we read God's word together. It says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin a time of studying your word, Lord God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would give the words that we need to hear. Father, your power would be evident through the proclaiming of your word and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Again, what we need more than anything is a transformed heart. God is not trying to make us better. He came to make us new. And so what we see in this text is that mankind's greatest problem 
is a worship problem. Now, the charge brought by the prosecution is that of idolatry. And it manifests itself in a few different ways in our text. In verse 25, Paul says, because of our sin nature, we prefer to serve and worship the creature rather than our creator. This is more than just having gold statues in our house or or things like that. The charge of idolatry goes deeper because the root of idolatry is a misplaced love. It's misguided worship. Because what happens is that we love the gifts that we receive more than the one who has given us the gifts. The Bible connects for us our character to the most significant of all human functions, worship. Worship will reveal who we're living for, who matters to us, what is the most important to us. Because we were made to worship. We were made for intimacy and relationships first with with God. But the problem is in our sin nature, we tend to place higher value on things than the giver of these things, including our life. We tend to want to accumulate stuff instead of praise God who has given us our stuff. Uh, There's a pastor by the name of Paul David Tripp, and he defines worship this way, quote, Worship is an inner desire for wonder, amazement, and awe. It's the search for purpose in life. It drives us to look to someone or something to give us an identity, end quote. Now, using this definition, what we need to understand is that our ability to be awed or to have this wonder and amazement, this desire to have purpose in life, this desire to have an identity, it is given to us by God in order to drive us to God. But so often we stand in wonder, awe, and amazement of ourselves, of things around us. We look at our purpose in life as, well, I want to make myself happy and, and, you know, live a good life. We look to a lot of things to give us our identity. For some, it's work. For some, it's our marriage or our, our family. Some, it's in the size of our bank account or our education or all these things. We look to the temporary to give us an identity. The problem is we weren't created for temporary. We were created by and for the eternal. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1, 16, that we were created by God and for God. Worship is the drive. It's who we live for. And who we are living for is seen in how we live. So we have to connect how we are living to our worship. Worship is more than music that we sing in a corporate gathering. Worship is who we are and worship is how we are living because worship is really describing or ascribing worth to someone or something. We're saying, Lord, you are worthy of my love. 
my time, my devotion. You are worthy of my life in everything that I do. We will either be controlled by a love for God, which is worship, or we will be controlled by a craving of something in this world, which is idolatry. Who we are worshiping in our life is also seen in how we react to circumstances in life. We will only respond appropriately to circumstances in our life as we're controlled by a love for God. See, this is because when we're loving and living for God, my life will be based on His Word and how He is revealed in His Word. And so what ends up happening is when something goes wrong in life or when people mistreat us in life, if I'm controlled by a love for God, I won't let it distract me or deter me in what I'm doing because I know this, the Bible reveals that God is in control of all things at all times. And he is so powerful that he can take what man means for evil and he can use it for his glory and for our good. And so as I trust and am controlled by the love of God, how people treat me, the circumstances going on around me, will not cause me to lose sleep. It will not cause me to lose joy because I know Jesus is still on his throne and he is working all things out. When I'm controlled by love for God, I won't worry as much because I know that God is good and he is loving and he has promised to meet all of our needs his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When I'm controlled by a love for God, I won't stress as much because I'll realize there's a God and I'm not Him. And no amount of worrying and stressing about a situation is going to change that situation. My job is not to fix my circumstances. My job is to fix my eyes on Jesus. And to love him and worship him. But if my identity depends on what others think about me, if my identity depends on do I have as much as those people around me, then I'm going to react very poorly to circumstances. Because one day people are going to love you and they're going to have a great use for you. And then the next, they're going to forget you because you don't advance their agenda. And if my identity depends on the pats on the back, I will be one of the most miserable people in all the world. And I'm afraid that when we step back and we look at our world, when we look at our nation and much of what is going on, it is very, very evident that we are controlled by a love of things instead of the creator. So let me just ask you a question right here. How are you handling the circumstances in your life right now? You know, we always like to believe that we're handling them really well. We always like to think, I, I got this under control. There's no problem until there's, well, a really big problem. Well, how did it become a really big problem? Because we didn't deal with it when it was little. You know, those of you that have been with us uh, throughout 2019 know that the beginning of this year was a little on the treacherous side uh, for our family. Our youngest son, Caleb, is, is, of course, a wrestler. 
And January 4th, 2019 at Stanton River High School, Caleb injured his back. Now, we didn't really know how severe anything it was because at first he would go every now and then going, Dad, my back hurts. You know, we'd take a 30-minute car trip. Dad, man, I'm, I'm really sore. And so the thought was, you know, probably pulled a muscle. So we're going to hold you out of some practices. We were going into a break from tournaments leading up to the state tournament. Said this is coming at a good time. We're going to let you rest uh, a little bit. Well, fast forward into February, and it's just a persistent problem to the point that by the end of the state tournament in Richmond, he's crying with every step he's taking. It hurts. He can't get comfortable no matter what. He does. It, it, it's so severe that we end up going to the emergency room three times. Uh, finally, on the third time, they said, you know, we've done x-rays, we've done a CT scan, but we need to find out why an otherwise healthy 10-year-old boy is crying every step he takes. So we're going to admit him. We're going to do an MRI. Of course, the MRI reveals he's got two herniated discs. Now, we could have ignored it said ah, it's not that big of a deal it's just pulled muscle take it easy we, we could have just looked the other way and hoped that it would have gotten better but had we not gone through that MRI we would not have seen just how serious this could have been until it became much more serious and the same is true for you and I I want us to learn to see that when God allows pain and difficulty into our life, it's not because he is mad, but rather it is because he is trying to realign our worship because we have misguided our love. Pain and difficulty in life is God lovingly and graciously going, there is a problem. Now, we always going to go, I, I agree, Lord, there's a problem. Go get them. And he goes, no, 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 no. You. What, me? But this is what God is doing, is God is trying to realign our worship because we have allowed our love to become misguided. We've got a worship problem. You know, one of the things I love about Scripture is that it not only accurately diagnoses our problem, it also immediately points us to the solution. And in this case, the solution in, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, is Jesus. You know, as Romans 1 begins, God is the prosecuting attorney. Paul is his mouthpiece. And God is laying out piece of evidence after piece of evidence against us. Just listen just to this. Okay, in Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, God says, you're all guilty of idolatry. We are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We are trying to explain and remove God from our knowledge. We get to Romans 1, 21 and 22. We see that we are rejecting God's plan and design for our most basic relationships. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then chapter 2, 17 to 3, 8. 
is how God has rejected Israel over and over and over. Chapter 3, 9 to 20, is God saying, we've all rejected God. None of us love God. None of us seek God. We are all condemned. That's not a really happy picture, right? Like, it's not going to go on a Hallmark card. It is a prosecuting attorney doing his job, going, your honor, they're guilty. And before the, the righteous judge's gavel can come down, declaring us not guilty, sentencing us to death, we get that plot twist. And everything gets turned on its head in chapter 3, verses 21 through really 25. Because what happens is that before the pronouncement of guilty is made, the prosecuting attorney gets up, goes over to the defense table, and goes, wait a minute, Your Honor. I have a defense. I paid their debt. Listen to what he says, chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What just happened? The same God who just moments earlier was proving our guilt has now stepped over and said, but wait. It's interesting to see that nowhere in Scripture do they ever deny our guilt. You know, we often think of the woman caught in adultery there at the end of John 7 and opening of John 8. And you know the scene. They bring this woman before Jesus. Throw her at his feet and said, Teacher, we found this woman. We caught her in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They weren't interested in justice. But Jesus plays alone. And we know that he says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And he stoops down and he's, he's riding in the sand and they begin to drop the rocks and, and walk away. Now here's where the whole story changes. Because Jesus looks up at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? They've left. Nobody's condemned you? No one, Lord. Neither do I. Go, sin no more. Did you notice that Jesus never denied her guilt? He never said, oh, you weren't caught in adultery. You just tripped and fell into him. Like, Jesus never denied her guilt. He was acknowledging her guilt. But then he was saying, I have the power to forgive you. And so I do. This is the beauty of what has happened in this text. That though we are guilty before God in our sin, Jesus has said, I declare them not guilty and righteous. Therefore, Father, we must acquit them because I paid for them. How can we not fall in love with God more when we realize what he has done for us? The judge has declared that the payment of our debt was satisfactory. That's the word propitiation. The judge says the payment was satisfactory. 
Therefore, the debt has been removed and the penalty has been set aside. But don't miss 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The only hope of forgiveness and redemption lies in the person and the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and through his resurrection. We should have never been acquitted, but we are because God has paid our debt. And so what do we need to remember out of this text? The first thing that we need to remember again is that Jesus is the only answer we have. We have a problem that we cannot fix on our own. Oh, we try. We try to be good people. We try to do the right things. But in light of our treason and rebellion against God, the prophet Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is but filthy rags. The best we have to present in our defense, God says, is inadmissible. Only the grace of God through faith can save us. And so what we need is to have our worship realigned. To have our hearts, our emotions, our desires changed that can only come from a new heart given to us by the one who died in our place. See, a lot of people get frustrated by religion because they think it's all about behavior modification. But God is not primarily interested in behavior modification. He is interested in life transformation. You know, this time of year, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. By the way, there's nothing biblical for or against them. But so often, our New Year's resolutions are us-centered and only what we can do in our own power. God wants to set you free from that. And by the blood of his son, he will. He wants to realign our worship from worrying about ourselves to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Too often, we treat salvation as the finish line. Okay, we want to get them in church. We want to preach the gospel. We, we want them to walk in aisle, say a prayer, and man, we did our job. What scripture paints for us, though, is something vastly different. That salvation is not the finish line, but rather it is the starting line. So the second thing I would say that we need to remember is this. It is a process. The goal is not just changed behavior. It is a transformed heart that leads to a changed life. But this isn't instantaneous. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is a promise from God. What Paul is saying is this, you are a work in progress that will not be finished until you are face to face with the one who loved you, created you, and died for you. 
Now, it's true that some changes are going to come very quickly. When we go from living for ourselves to living for God, some things are going to change pretty quickly. But the vast majority of changes in our life are going to come over time as God changes my desires and my emotions. I go from being a servant and slave to sin to a servant and slave to Jesus. I learn to seek first His kingdom. Instead of one big monumental change, it's many little changes that add up to a huge difference over the course of your life. And see, that's because while the penalty of sin has been paid, while the power of sin has been broken, the process of being freed from that sin is a lifetime process. We see this very clearly in the Old Testament with Israel. If you remember, God supernaturally uh, delivers Israel from Egypt. As they're leaving Egypt, they come between a sea and an army. And God miraculously, he supernaturally, parts the Red Sea. They cross over on dry land. While that is a historical event, it is also pointing us to what God in salvation has done. You see, while God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, the trip from the Red Sea to the Promised Land was going to be God getting Egypt out of Israel. Sin is the only life. Uh, Egypt was the only life that they had ever known. They were used to doing things the Egyptian way. And now God was going to begin the process of teaching them how to do things His way. And the same is true for you and I. We are dead in our sin. We have lived for ourselves. We have served sin all of our life. But from the moment He comes and saves us by His grace, from that point until the day of our death, He begins to transform us and to change us. Because while He has saved us from the world, God is going to spend the rest of our life getting the world out of us so that we're full of Him. Which means you and I, along this path, we're going to still struggle with sin because we still have a sin nature. Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. This is not a license to sin. The Christian has no right ever to go, well, you know, I just couldn't help it. It's just sin nature in me. That's a lie that has to be rejected. But it doesn't mean just because you have been saved that you're miraculously going to have it all together. And so I want us to remember two things when sin occurs in our life. First, you have already been forgiven. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, 12 declares that God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. He was saying, the penalty, the power, the debt of past, present, and future sins has been paid for those who believe. They've been removed. So when Satan wants to bring up your past, 
remind him of what Jesus did on your behalf. You have been declared not guilty by God. Second, you are not hopeless. The same God that saved you is with you and living inside of you to change you. You don't have to figure this out on your own. You don't have to live the Christian life in your own power and strength. Fact of the matter, I would submit to you this morning that the reason that you try to serve God but continue to fail is because you are relying on yourself, not the Spirit. But the Spirit has been given to you by God inside of you to help you. And this is a process that He is committed to. Being confident in this very thing, that He who has begun a good work will complete it. Jesus is more committed to your spiritual transformation than frankly sometimes we are. He's going to see it through to the end. So trust Him for He's the only way. Work with Him. While God is doing the work in us, we have a responsibility to obey Him. So work with Him. And as you do, watch what He does in you and watch what He does through you. And it will be all for His glory and for our good. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together?